This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Do you know how many times the Bible mentions love? Over 500 times. 1 John, the book we're in today, talks about love 46 times. And even the passage within 1 John that we're in today mentions it 14 times. So guess what we're talking about today? <laughs> yes, we're talking about God's love today, and that includes grace. But it's safe to say that the Word of God has much to say about love. And at the same time, so does our world. And we have to realize that there, there are two very different perspectives on love. You know all the hashtags that we hear about? Hashtag love is love, or hashtag love yourself, or hashtag love wins, or my personal favorite. And go ahead and write this down. Hashtag love that chicken from Popeye's, <laughs> which is actually the title of today's sermon. So yeah, go ahead and write that down. Actually, don't. I'm going to mess up your notes. Uh, but yes, the world speaks very heavily on loving each other. But while sometimes it can pass as noble on the outside, at its core, without the notion of God, it's selfish in nature. It gets skewed. It becomes all about yourself, your personal feelings, your personal satisfaction. A love that's more preoccupied with what you can consume from a relationship than what you can contribute to it. A love that fluctuates based on circumstances, friendly in one moment and fuming in another. And if you want a good example of this, look no further than my wonderful son, Jackson. Let's just say that the terrible threes are very real. No, he's honestly such a sweet kid. He also just happens to be a little temperamental. So when he's happy, he loves to help us around the house. He plays with us, cuddles with us, smothers us with kisses. But when he doesn't get, get his way, he gets a little grumpy, gets upset with us, stomps around Gives us that, you know, that side eye. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes he even says things like, you're a bad dad. Ouch, right? I'll be honest, when I first heard those words, my heart sunk. But then I was reminded not to take it too seriously because a minute later he'll say that he's sorry and that we're best friends and that I'm the best dad in the world. So... Yeah, and then I completely forget about what he said at first. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think us adults also have our own temper tantrums and mood swings that affect the way we relate to each other and the way we love each other. We're just much better at masking it and internalizing it. See, when others don't meet our expectations, when we don't get what we want, when we feel like we're treated unfairly, our natural response is to push back put up walls, withhold love from others. Because the truth is, we're more interested in loving ourselves. We almost act as if we're the arbiters of love, deciding who should and shouldn't receive our love. And it's kind of arrogant if you think about it. The truth is, that person you have a hard time loving, God truly loves them. Despite how you feel. And if recent history has taught us anything, or even the course of the past few years, especially during this pandemic, it's how polarized and unloving we as a people actually are. Political disagreements, 
religious beliefs, racial tensions, not to mention the day-to-day conflicts that happen within our families and friends, issues at work, even at church. You name a topic or an event, and you know the people have divided over it, relationships relationship strained to it, groups of people with animosity towards each other because of it. See, we're really good at loving others when we feel loved. But that's not the measure of a life that is truly filled with the love of God. We're called to a love that has no bounds, draws no limits. So I think it's safe to say that unconditional love, if not impossible, unconditional love is hard, if not impossible, when Christ is not front and center. Without understanding the deep love of God, any of our attempts to exemplify it are going to fall apart. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. See, while the world tries to define and redefine what love is, it grows more and more inconsistent and disconnected from what true love actually is, a love that is based on unconditional, faithful commitment, a love that is from God, because as we're going to see, God is love. See, while we may be erratic and self-absorbed in how we relate to others, God's love comes in full. It does not waver. It does not change. And it's overwhelmingly devoted to you. And so the title of today's sermon is God's Perfect Love. God's Perfect Love. If you haven't done so yet, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be in verses 13 through 21. And what I want us to get from this passage is that when we grow in our awareness of God's love for us, we'll be marked by the same love for the people he's placed in our lives. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called to a lifestyle that encompasses grace, forgiveness, and sacrifice. Not just for the people that make us happy, but despite the ones that don't. A call that we willfully submit to because of God's compassion and love for us. See, our love for others and our love for God is inseparable. We can't have one without the other. And so our big idea is this. Go ahead and write this down. Our love for others is evidence of God's love in us. Our love for others is evidence of God's love in us. Love is a natural byproduct of being filled with the love of God. So then the question is, are we actually filled with the love of God? Are we allowing him to move in our hearts? It's easy to love when it's convenient, when you feel like someone is deserving of your love, when it doesn't cost us anything. But again, you have to realize that's not what true love is. That's not what agape love is, the highest form of love, the sacrificial love of God. Because the true love of God draws no limitations, makes no exceptions. And so our ability to love others is a measure of God's presence in us. Let me say that again. Our ability to love others is a measure of God's presence in us. It can only grow as our understanding of God's love for us deepens. And so he's not only our example of perfect love, he's also the source. 
So the question is, how can we be assured that this perfect love is within us? A love that gives us the ability to love others. We're going to be talking about three evidences of God's perfect love in us. Three evidences of God's perfect love in us. First, God's love resides in those who belong to him. God's love resides in those who belong to him. Our ability to love is established by the love shown at the cross. Let's read uh, verses 13 through 16 together. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we, so we have come to know and to believe the love, of God, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So lots of words, lots of repetition. And John basically goes in a circular way to make his point clear. So let's break this down together. What he's trying to explain is how to know whether God abides in us or not. In other words, how do you know if you are saved? Because apart from the salvation gifted to you by God, apart from the indwelling presence in you, you cannot love like Jesus. So how do you know if God abides in you? Verse 13 says, if you belong to God, verse 13 says, you belong to God if he's given you his spirit. And then you might ask, how do I know if I've been given his spirit? When we look at verse 14, it says, You've been given a spirit if you are someone that testifies that the Son of God sent his Son. The Son of God was sent to save the lost. Because apart from the Spirit working in us to begin with, we don't have the capacity to understand or believe the gospel. But if the Spirit is in you, verse 15 says that when you believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then you know that God abides in you. And then verse 16 brings it all full circle and he goes on to explain that God is love. And if God abides in you and love is at the core of who God is, then this perfect love abides in you as well. All that to say, if you know God, you know love. And I want us to pause here for a moment. God is love. It's a beautiful phrase, to be sure. But it's also one of those phrases that's heavily misinterpreted. So I don't want to get get this twisted. Just because we can say God is love does not mean love is God. We don't worship the idea of love. We worship the God who defined love. What we sometimes do and what our culture does is define love first in our own terms and then try to squeeze God into our definition. Rather than let God inform our definition of what love is. And here John tells us that his love is at the center of the gospel. That while we were sinners in rebellion, choosing the world over God, While we turned our faces away from him, when we were destined 
for eternal, eternal separation from God. Out of his good love for us, he met us in our desperation. He sent his son to take our place. He was hung on the cross for our sin. Do we really get that? See, I feel like, especially if we're churched, we've, we, feel, we hear this truth so often, but we forget the magnitude of what this really means. There was nothing lovely about us. In no way were we some masterpiece to be saved. Jonathan Edwards says this, We contribute nothing to our salvation, but the sin that made it necessary. God didn't have to budge. We worship a triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who existed in perfect love, in perfect community, in perfect relationship. Yet he looked at us in our depravity and he broke, he broke that unity by sacrificing what was most precious to him, his son, for the sake of lost sinners like us. But Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And as we believe this, we abide in him and enjoy his presence forever. God's love for us flows from this very truth. So how do you know if you have his love? He literally dwells in us. When you know God, you know love. God is love. So the first evidence of God's love in us is that we belong to him. Second evidence of God's love in us is that it frees us from fear. God's love frees us from fear. Let's read verses 17 and 18 together. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may be so we so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So perfect love casts out fear. So how do we make sense of this? Especially when the Bible tells us in other passages precisely to fear the Lord. What we need to understand first is there's a difference between a healthy, reverent, or respectful fear and awe of a holy God versus being scared of future judgment or fear of punishment by him. Those that don't yet know God may be worried or confused about what's going to happen when we die. When you ask the world about it, you'll get a multitude of responses. And it'd be normal for people to hear that they're hoping that their good actions will outweigh the bad. But behind all of it is a fear of catastrophe if they don't have it right. A moment ago, we just talked about the consequences of our sin being death, hell, and separation from God for eternity with nothing in our power to bridge that gap. That's what this judgment day is referring to. Anyone that has ever lived will face God one day will judge us based on our standing before him. We either approach the judge as guilty of our sin or we come before him as innocent and free because his son Jesus now stands on our behalf. Not because we were clean, but because of what he accomplished on the cross. We went from being sentenced to face eternal torment due to our defiance 
to now freely being in the loving embrace of God forever. A perfect love. You can't add anything to it. You can't improve it. It's full and it's complete and it's overwhelmingly good and it's for you. So yes, judgment and hell and torment, and that all rightfully sounds frightening. But this is why John says the perfect love casts out fear. Because if you wholeheartedly believe in perfect love, the love that's demonstrated on Calvary, he has changed the trajectory of your life eternally, and you should have no fear about your future because you belong in the hands of a sovereign and loving God. You can be confident today before a holy God, because when he looks at you, again, he sees Jesus who stood on our behalf. Your future is secure. And we get to look forward to a love that is exponentially greater than any pleasure, than any love that we've experienced here. And so when you face the difficult and daunting parts of your life, I want to encourage you to slow down. And remember that our greatest problem was our sin. And in one generously loving act, we were rescued from it forever. God instructs us in in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God. And so we can boldly navigate this life knowing that it's the Spirit of God that walks with us and guides us till we meet Jesus face to face. We are never alone. He will never forsake us. He is good till the end. And so we don't need to fear. We can have peace. His love is the assurance of our salvation. His love is the confidence that we have as we look forward. And if you're here today and you don't know who God is or where you stand, just know that he loves you. And I want to encourage you to think about what we've discussed today so far. And I pray that the gospel of Christ will draw you in so he can make you his. We're talking about three evidences of God's love in us. First, God's love resides in those who belong to him. Second, God's love frees us from fear. And third, God's love prompts us to love others. God's love prompts us to love others. Let's read verses 19 through 21 together. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time together. Because now we've come full circle. We said that God's saving work is the defining act of love in this world. And that if you truly believe this, it's a sign that the Spirit is actually working in you. We said that God is love and that love is in you because God abides in you. And that's awesome, right? But then why is loving like Jesus so hard? Again, it's, it's easy to love someone when it's mutually beneficial. When they've met your expectations, when they fill you up. But Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that even the pagans do that. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing godly about that. But it's a different ballgame when we're talking about loving through the pain, through the hurt, forgiving mistakes, showing grace and mercy. 
all things that Christ did for us first. The only thing that will limit our capacity to love like Jesus will be because we've lost our awareness of the depths of God's love for you in Jesus. When you forget how costly the cross was. John says that if you claim to love God and then turn around and withhold his love from others, you're a liar. And if we're honest with ourselves, this makes us uncomfortable because there's no gray area for us here. And we love to operate in this gray area where it's more comfortable, right? Where we can still act loving, but not too invested, where it would be costly for us. Where we could still be civil with someone, someone that we have conflict with, but deeply holding hurt in your heart. Where you may not even want to call it hate, but deep down you know that your withholding of love is no different. John goes on to say that if we don't love others, we don't truly love God. That's because loving others is a reflection of our love for God himself. So the next time we catch ourselves hating someone else or withholding love from someone, remember, we're just doing the same thing to God. And you might say, but you don't know who I'm dealing with. You don't know how they've offended me. How they've hurt me. And that very well may be true. And so I'm not going to downplay the difficulty of relationships. I know they're messy and complicated. And our temptation is to point the finger at someone else. But I want to challenge you in this moment here, to refrain. Because your inability to love someone you're having difficulty with might say more about you than the person you're dealing with. I heard a pastor, author Paul Tripp say this before, the reason I don't love God, I'm sorry, the reason I don't love people in my life the way I should is because I don't love God in the way that I claim Let me say that again. The reason I don't love the people in my life the way I should is because I don't love God in the way that I claim. See, we say that we love God. We sing that we love God. We pray that we love God. But when faced with difficulty in relationships, we don't look like we love God. My question for us, is your actions towards others back up your claim that you love Jesus? Verse 21 points out that genuinely loving the people in our life is a commandment from God. It's not just a suggestion. Scripture consistently tells us that we show our love to God when we keep his commandments. If my daughter tells me she loves me and then turns around and punches her brother, I'm not going to feel very loved. In the same way, God is saying, how can you say you love me if you don't love them? How can you say you belong to me when you're so quick to reject others? 
I showed you love first, even when you weren't lovable. How can you hold it from others? Our obedience to God's good commandment to love others testifies to his dwelling in us. We love God because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. We keep his commandments because he first loved us. And so I don't want us to leave this place without actually attempting to do something with the passage that we've discussed. So we're going to talk about two steps that we're going to take today. First, preach the gospel to yourself. Do this regularly in prayer and thought. This is how God manifests himself in your life. This is the only way we will grow in love. Jesus saved us from our sin. So remember, that includes the sin that hinders you from loving others. The sin that makes you more self-focused. He saved us from ourselves so we could be more fixated on him. Jesus was treated like a sinner so we could be treated like Jesus. So that we could love like him. And that grace that rescued us from our sin is the same grace that empowers us to love others today. And with that said, let's, let's take that second step. No one, no one likes conflict. The conflict, if you're in relationship with anybody, is inevitable. But we do have a choice in how we respond to conflict. So I just want us to think of a few people in our lives People that we're not reflecting the love of Christ towards. At least one. Write down their name if it helps you remember. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do because every situation is unique and complex and delicate and needs to be handled with care. But at the end of the day, the commandment is still the same. To love them like God has loved you. So the first thing I want us to do is pray for them. I think it becomes much harder to remain divided when you're actively praying for someone. From there, it could be all sorts of things. It might be pursuing reconciliation. It might mean just forgiving someone that's hurt you. It might even mean asking for forgiveness. It could be lowering your walls. Sometimes it means being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. It might mean repenting of your pride. I encourage you to just be sensitive to how the Spirit might be moving in you today. We don't just love others because that's just what we do. We love others because He loved us first. When Jesus' love overwhelms us, when it truly means something to us, we can't help but love others. We're not dragging our feet. Again, our love for others is evidence of God's love in us. And so as we close, church, there, if there's one thing that's obvious, is that godly love requires work. It's going to cost us something. So let's be a people that will confront our anger with mercy, confront our pride with humility, confront our apathy with compassion. Let's be a people that consider each other more significant than ourselves. 
We can't muster up this type of love by our own strength, but we can by his power and his spirit moving in our hearts. Then we can love God the way he intended for us. And let's finish with this. You guys remember the story of the, of the Charleston church shooting in 2015? If you're not familiar, Dylan Roof was a 21-year-old was who attended a historically African-American church Bible study where he tragically shot and killed nine members out of his hate for them. He was captured, and, and during his sentencing, the judge asked if the loved ones of the victims had anything to say to Dylan. And the responses were just unbelievable. One of the loved ones said to Dylan, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never hold her again, but I forgive you. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. Let God forgive you. Another family member said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. And we would like you to take this opportunity to repent and give your life to the one that matters most, Christ. So he can change you and change your ways and you will be better for it. And uh, one last loved one said, although my grandfather and the other victims died, everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and their legacies will live in love and hate won't win. What an incredible response to such a horrific situation. This is the evidence of God's love in his people. This is what it looks like when you understand what God did for you in Jesus. This is what it looks like when you're abiding in the love of God. And I always remember this part from Chris Talman's song, All to Us. I'm not going to sing it. But it goes, Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. You are all to us. Friends, I pray that this will be true of us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.